we're going to be in Acts uh, chapter 3 this afternoon. Uh, Pray with me if you would. Let's ask for the Lord's help as we read the scripture, preach from the scripture, hear and receive and apply what God has said. Father, we do. We know that your words, the Bible that we have, your words, they are spirit and they are life. They are nourishment for your people. And we ask for the Spirit's help to give us ears that hear, eyes that see, understanding of the heart to comprehend and receive. And Lord, let let the word today be that beautiful picture window that through which we look and can behold more of your glory and your goodness. Open wide our hearts. Pray for each one who's here this afternoon listening. Uh, Lord, you know them. You know their lives. You know the details of what they are facing, what they are enduring, what they are in the midst of right now. And we pray for your spirit to speak words of comfort, words of truth, words of strength, words of encouragement to each one. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Our series in the book of Acts, subtitled Life in the Power of the Spirit. The book of Acts is an account of the life of the early church. So from the time uh, Jesus ascended to be at the right hand of the Father, we have the apostles sent out, the outpouring of the Spirit. And now we're beginning in chapter 3. Chapter 3 actually begins kind of a, a new section where it begins with the first recorded miracle done by the apostles. Now, we know from previously in verse 43 of chapter 2 that there were many signs and wonders done by the hands of the apostles. But now we have one in particular recorded. And Luke chose this one for a reason. Now, there's a similar pattern in chapter 3 as there was in chapter 2. God moves in power in a remarkable way. Peter follows up with a sermon about Jesus, explaining basically what you just saw take place. That's really all about Jesus. And then he makes an appeal, and you need to surrender. You need to humble, repent, and come and put your trust in Jesus, and many do. Chapter 2, 3,000 added to the church. In chapter 3, we've got a similar sort of sequence of events. There's an outpouring, a a unique expression of God's power. Peter follows it up with a sermon telling us that it was really all about Christ, what had just happened. Makes an appeal. I call you to repent and put trust in Jesus. And again, there's a wonderful response. Another 2,000 added to the church in this next section. Although something is added in the next section, persecution comes in, and so we'll get to that in the weeks to come. But a wonderful uh, summation as Luke sums up the next section, and basically we're going to come to see that, okay, even in spite of persecution, the church is doing just fine. The characteristics of the church that got laid out that we talked about last week, oh, they're in, in full run. They are still intact. Nothing to worry about. The persecution has not slowed down the church in any means. So, but what we're going to do this afternoon is we're just going to look at that miracle. 
that initial act of God's power that sets and initiates this next section. So over the next several weeks, we'll fill out the section. But this afternoon, we're just going to focus on these first 10 verses, the powerful event that sets this section in motion. Here in the beginning of chapter 3, the power of God charges into one's man life, one man's life, a man whose life is to most of us unimaginably miserable. And the power of God comes in and brings this man to a place of what still many of us would be unimaginable joy. God's power brings one man from misery to joy, and this is put on display for you and I to read about and benefit from, to remind us that please never forget this is what the power of God does in a life. It steps into our misery and moves us to a place of great joy. If I were to say to you that God is the one person in existence that experiences and lives in the greatest pleasures and the greatest happiness and the greatest joy, would that surprise you? If I describe God to you in that way, he's the one with the greatest pleasures, the greatest joys, the greatest happiness. Does this surprise you? Is that how you think about God? And if I were to tell you that what God has done and continues to do, that his overall plan, that his intention of everything we know about him is to charge into your life and my life and invite you and I in to that extraordinary happiness and joy and pleasure. Would that surprise you? Is that who you think God is? And is that what you think God is actually up to? Yes, it is. That's my point. That's precisely who he is, and that is precisely what he's doing. But in a world filled with pain and suffering, and all of you know this, some all too well, and having hearts within ourselves still at a fight with things that oppose God, and we all know this all too well, we can easily forget or not believe that these things about God are true. Because when life is bad, we wonder, who is God really? Why this how come this way? John Piper, in a book that he'd written some time ago, The Pleasures of God, writes this. He says, what the church, 
and the world need today more than anything else is to know and love God. The great, glorious, sovereign, happy God of the Bible. Very few people think of God as supremely happy in the fellowship of the Trinity and in the work of creation and redemption. The volcanic exuberance of God over the worth of his son and the work of his hands and welfare of his people is not well known. I want to surprise you this afternoon with just how happy God is, how filled with pleasure he is, how filled with joy he is. And then I want you to be convinced from our text that inviting you into all of that of who he is is what he is all about. Your greatest happiness. The Lord has it and is inviting you into it. So this is an account of how God's power brought one man from misery to joy to serve as a reminder of this very idea. Let's read the text together. First 10 verses of Acts chapter 3. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. And a man lame from birth was being carried, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate, to ask alms of those entering the temple. Now, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, Look at us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. And all the people saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. My outline for you this afternoon Point one, one's one man's misery, and there'll be a counterpoint to each one and every man's ministry. Second point will be one man's miracle and every man's miracle. Third point will be one man's joy and every man's joy. So we're going to begin with one man's misery, the lame man in our text. Of all the signs and wonders that had been done, were being done, Luke writing the book of Acts, chose this one. He picked this one because this man's situation reveals something important for all of us to know and understand. It was an extreme case of inability. 
This is what we know about this particular man who's unable to walk, and he had been born this way. He had to be carried wherever he went, and he was about 40 years old. This man had not stood on his own two feet for a moment of his 40-plus-year life. He lived a life entirely dependent upon outside help to survive. There was only one viable opportunity for him to survive, and that was to ask for help, which he did day after day in front of the gate of the temple known as the beautiful gate. If there's anything positive about this man's life is that he apparently had prime real estate for begging. I don't know if the folks that stand on the street corner fight over who gets what intersection or what turning lane or what piece of the sidewalk, but the beautiful gate was a great place to be asking for help. This is Herod's temple, known as the second temple, and it was one ornate, extravagant temple. And the beautiful gate, we know, were these huge, massive doorways, 70, 75 feet high, made of bronze, covered in gold and silver. And this was the place that he sat. Now, having an impressive gate to sit in front of it means really nothing. But what was helpful was that for the... For Judaism, for the people in that area, giving alms was a norm and expected. And so each day as people would make their way into the temple, there was some level of expectation that they would give, drop a few coins in this man's hand. It appears maybe that God used this means to keep this man alive for 40 years until this very day when Peter and John made their way to go and pray in the temple that afternoon. What's clear about this particular man is that he epitomized an extreme picture of helplessness. He needed to be carried wherever he went. Every day, every meal, every piece of bread relied on someone providing for him. A coin, leftover change, something. That was one man's misery. That was his life. Hard for us to imagine. Not many of us could relate to quite a miserable life. But in a very real way, this man represents every man's ministry. Well, you and I, I'm assuming most of us in the room cannot quite fathom the actuality of this man's life. But God can. We don't think we're like him. We think we're very dissimilar to him. But God thinks you and I are quite like him, very similar in some very real ways that we might be completely unaware of, not tuned into. This man could not walk. Now, in the Bible, walking is often used as sort of a, just a, a metaphor for living life. We, we walk. When we walk, we're alive. But in particular, the Bible focuses onto a walking with God. 
uses that phrase several times. In fact, the implication from early in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 3, now this is after Adam and Eve have sinned, but it talks about God coming into the garden that he created for Adam and Eve and walking in the garden and looking for Adam. The implication is Adam and Eve walked with God in the garden. A chapter or so later, we hear the phrase from Enoch, who walked with God, chapter 5, verse 24. And when Noah is introduced in chapter 6, it says that Noah walked with God. But back to Genesis chapter 3, what's described there is what we call the fall. It's how this went wrong, and what went wrong was when God came walking in the garden. What does it say about Adam and Eve? They hid themselves from God. In other words, their walking with God had been severed. They were no longer walking with God. They were still alive in some sense of the word, but something had changed. They were not walking with God anymore. To this day, not walking with God is the norm. You and I are born into this world. The Bible would describe this as being born under sin, born under the curse of Adam. We're born into this state of not walking with God. So we grow up in life, you don't really know anything other than not walking with God. We just think life is life, and I'm walking and I'm living life. We, we don't really clue into the reality that, oh, I'm not walking with God the way we were created to. From the very beginning, we were made and created to live life with God. This walking with God or not walking with God is the Bible's way of describing our real problem and God's very aim of redemption to restore us to this place of walking with God. Isaiah 59, the prophet in the first couple verses of that chapter says it like this very pointedly, behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened that it cannot save or his ear dull that it cannot hear, but your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God. And your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. We grope for the wall like the blind. We grope like those who have no eyes. We stumble at noon as in the twilight among those in full vigor. We are like dead men. So the Bible describes the natural state of a person not walking with God, not brought back near to God. And so when it comes to walking with God, we are in that sense just like this lame man, unable. We are in that sense the epitome of helplessness like this lame man was the epitome of helplessness. We cannot walk with God on our own. We need to be carried. We cannot earn it. We need alms. We need benevolence. We need gifts. 
We need a giver in order for that to take place. That's one man's misery and every man's misery. Secondly, there is one man's miracle. He asked for help. His need was so great, but he asked for so little. When we pass by somebody on the sidewalk, on the street corner there, asking for what? Some spare change. Now let's stop and just speculate. What do they really need? Well, what if they were to ask for what they actually needed? Can you imagine if I stood on the sidewalk with a cardboard sign that says, I need a new car. I need a house. I need a friend. I need a family. Well, they wouldn't do that because nobody's going to give them that. They're, they're asking for something so much smaller. Everything has gotten reduced. The need is huge. The request is small. Can you spare some change for me today? Is there something just sitting in your pocket that you would never miss that would make a difference for me today? I will eat today if you have something that you can spare in your pocket. Now, he had no idea that he was asking for far too little, too little. This is 40 years. This man has come to terms with his situation. He was not thinking in terms that his life was somehow going to change. After 40 years, this is how it goes. He lives one day at a time, one piece of bread at a time, one coin at a time, day in and day out. But Peter and John take notice of him. On their way into the temple for prayer, this man caught their attention. Doesn't explain why, what was going on. Was it compassion? Were they struck with his desperate situation? Did it prompt some gospel correlation perspective in Peter and John's thinking? We don't know. Were they thinking, this was us before Jesus came and found us? This man reminds me of me. John, this guy reminds us of us before the master called us and found us. Either way, Peter tells the man what have become in the history of the church, these wonderful words, especially in the King James Version, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have I give unto thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he takes him by the hand. And can you imagine? This man got up. The power of God charged in to this man's life. And the power of God healed him. And this man, who had never stood on his own a moment in his life, in his 40s now, stands up. And everything is made strong. Feet, ankles, 
In the, in the Greek, it's a, it's a little bit of a medical, technical terminology. Joseph Park could fill this out for us fantastically. Talk about the carpal tunnels or whatever, parts of the feet and the ankles, and they just all got right, and he stood up, and he was on his feet, and he's walking, and he's able to stand and walk and run and jump. I know some of you in the room have had trouble with your ankles, and someone in the room has done surgery on your ankles. And when that was over, you were sent home, probably with some pain medication and some orders. Okay, now here's what you do first. Don't put any weight on it for this amount of time. Wear this boot, do this. In certain time, you'll regain your strength. So thank God for the, for the wonders of what our friend Joseph does to help people walk who were unable to walk. But even with that, you need time to recuperate. You might need some PT to get back in the mode of being able to walk. And, and don't start jumping just yet. But God's power comes into this man's life. And in a moment, he's able to leap, jump, run. A remarkable miracle has taken place. What's God saying in this situation? What must be true about God for this to have taken place? I see you. I know your needs. I care about you. I have for you more than you could think or ask, I am here. I can do all things. Nothing is impossible with me. My plans for you far exceed what you are asking for now. Friends, there are times when God does not give us what we are asking for because he has in mind to give us something altogether greater. We think our need is less than it is, so we ask for less than what we truly need. Sometimes what we recognize about ourselves is our own failure, thinking that we deserve less, and that makes perfect sense. You remember the story of the prodigal son who took his inheritance early, the wealth of his father, and went and squandered it in reckless living? Do you remember how he returned when he came to himself, when he hit rock bottom and he returned to the father? Do you remember his posture? Do you remember what he said? I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. But what did he receive from the father? The father ran to greet him, kissed him, put a ring on his finger, new clothes on him, and threw a great banquet to welcome him home. God's resources do not run out or diminish, nor does his happiness or his joy or his mercy or his forgiveness. 
Have you forgotten this about God? Do you know this about the God that we serve? He is the most pleasure-filled, happy, joyful, generous person in existence, anytime, anywhere. This man's story is intended to remind you, to remind me of that about God. That was this man's miracle. And there is every man's miracle. This story is about so much more than one lame man. And next week, when Peter explains via Tim Owens that this was all about what Jesus did. Jesus is the one that made this man healthy. He is the one who healed this man, and he proceeds to appeal to everyone who's listening. And you need this Jesus too, just like this man. Look at this man and see what God can do in a person's life and come to him. There was another time that Jesus gave someone more than he was asking for. Maybe you remember in Mark chapter 2 as we studied through the gospel of Mark. There was another paralytic who had some friends that had to carry him around. They heard Jesus was in a house. And so this is the group that climbed up on the roof, tore open a hole in the roof, and lowered the man on his bed down in front of Jesus. Do you remember this story? And do you remember the peculiar thing that Jesus said to him first? When he saw their faith, he said, Son, your sins are forgiven. Okay, you're not that different from me. When you first read that, you thought, okay, not really what we were hoping for here. The real need was the paralytic needed to be healed. And Jesus challenged, as this ruffled everybody's feathers, and he poses the question, tell me, what's, what's easier? For me to tell this man, rise up and walk, or to tell him that his sins are forgiven? And you know the story. He told him, rise up and walk. And the man was healed as well. But here's the reality that we learn as this gospel plays out. Jesus can tell a paralytic to rise up and walk with a wave of his hand, a word of his mouth, a look of his eye, it's nothing for him to perform that miracle. But now we know what it took to forgive our sins. That required his life. That's where he had to lay himself down, surrender himself to an unjust criminal's death. And with that dying, with that yielding up of himself and laying down his life in total and his body put into a tomb and God raising him from the dead, that is what was required for God to be able to say to you and to me, your sins are forgiven. Which is easier to say, rise up and walk? or your sins are forgiven. One, a wave of the hand, 
to his very life. And this is every man's miracle. As he welcomes anyone who will call upon his name in faith and repentance, you too can walk with God again. You too, through faith in what Christ has done, your repentance, your faith, applied to what Jesus has done, invites you back. Christ has made access for you and I to enter into that great pleasure, that great happiness, that great joy, because that is who God is, and that is what God is doing. Third point, the joy of one man. Now he's in the temple with Peter and John, leaping and praising God. This would have been fun to watch. Especially, everybody knew him. Anybody going in and out of the temple saw this man every time they went there. He was like a fixture outside this gate. And now they're in the temple, and this man is leaping, running, praising God. He entered the temple. He's inside the place where God dwells. That's what the, the, the temple represents. This is the presence of God. So now he's no longer sitting outside the gate. He's inside the temple. He has been restored, and he is walking and leaping. He is walking with God. He is in the temple. He's in the presence of God, walking, and he had never stood a moment in his life. This man was healed, yes, but more so. He was restored to God. He not only could walk, but now he could walk in God's presence. Peter makes it clear that all this took place because of Jesus, and this could not have taken place apart from Jesus. And we know in our study of the New Testament that Jesus is now, he is the dwelling place of God. He, he's the tent, he's the tabernacle, he's the temple. Jesus himself, this is the place. Come to Jesus, this is where the presence of God is. You come to me and you are entering in to the very presence of God. He walked, he leapt, best of all, he praised God. This is the joy meant for us all, the joy of one man and every man's joy. This is our wonderful gospel. This man was meant to display something about God for us all. It is a picture of God's redemption, this new life in Christ. Now, everyone in the temple that day, it says they recognized him. They knew who he was. And most there would have also been very familiar with the Old Testament scriptures. And this man brings to mind Isaiah chapter 35. A wonderful chapter. I'm just going to sort of 
pick and choose some phrases here and read them to you. And this would have been, anybody schooled, grown up in this area, would have been very familiar with this chapter. And then seeing this lame man leaping and praising God in the temple would have put two and two together. Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Strengthen the weak hands and make firm the feeble knees. Say to those who have an anxious heart, listen, friends, be strong, fear not. Behold, your God will come with vengeance and with recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer and the tongue of the mute sing for joy and the ransomed of the Lord shall return and come to Zion with singing. Everlasting joy shall be upon their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy and sorrow and sighing shall flee away. Amen. This is Isaiah pronouncing the gospel ahead of time. This is what the Messiah is coming to give, to bring, to produce. Because God himself is filled with pleasure, filled with happiness, and filled with joy. And it, it is his plan to make a way to bring us, you and me, into that great pleasure, into that great happiness and joy. But how? How? I'll close with a simple application. The key to understanding how in the text that we read is in the verbs. Notice how Luke emphasizes looking. I don't know if you picked it up, as we read through these 10 verses, Peter and John directed their gaze at him. He said to the man, look at us. The man fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. Well, then all the people saw him and recognized and were filled with wonder and amazement. Later in verses that we di didn't read yet, but you'll see next week, Peter says to the crowd, why are you looking at us as if we did this by our ability? Okay, Christians, every disciple of Christ needs to learn how to look. That is part of our discipleship. That is a, that is a key component. It is a practice that you and I need to understand as a disciple. We need to learn how to look. I'm not talking about looking at something. You look at something with your eyes. I'm talking about looking to something. You look at something with your eyes. You look to something with your heart. We know this because we do this. We could say we look to our spouse to meet all our needs. And we know what kind of trouble that causes in a marriage. We look to our roles, our jobs, our careers to fulfill us. We look to our resumes to determine our status in this world. We look to our financial portfolios to determine our security. We know how to look to things. 
We do it all the time. Our hearts are always inclined to look to something for something. The true disciple is someone who has learned and is constantly learning how to look to Jesus for all things. Looking to Jesus is the thing that is in between us and the power of God. What took place between the power of God charging into this man's life and this man rejoicing in the temple? Look at me, Peter and John said. And he fixed his gaze upon them. Thomas Aquinas was a theologian in the 13th century. He made a trip to Rome. He was going to visit the headquarters of the church, and he had a visit scheduled with the Pope. When he got there, the headquarters for the church was filled with, with riches, and Aquinas was struck by the opulence that he saw there. In somewhat of a proud tone, the Pope made the statement to Aquinas, well, no longer do we say silver and gold have we none. To which Thomas looked at the Pope and said, and maybe that's why we can no longer say, rise up and walk. The story simply makes the point, looking to the wrong thing stands in between us and the real power of God. The key application is in the verb the pressing question is what are we looking to and the point of what it's calling us to is that we're looking to the right one why why is it so important to look to jesus because beholding is the way of becoming old author wrote the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love looking to is another way of saying set your affections and your expectations here now when those expectations and those affections are inordinately set on other things your job career, your resume, your education, your popularity, some skill set you have. Do you know what that does to the soul when you set your affections on the wrong thing? You're drawn away from the one place, from the one person to whom our affections and our expectations should be set upon. And our souls begin to deteriorate when our eyes are not on the one who gives life. When our affections and our attention and our direction and our looking to is not towards the one who lives and exists in the greatest pleasures and the greatest happiness and the greatest joy. 
And so we diminish our souls and we pull away from these good things. But when we fix our eyes, when we set our gaze, when our heart's affections are directed towards him, we become like the one we are beholding. And then the plan of God comes to fruition and we get invited in and his pleasures and his happiness and his joy begins to take root in our hearts and begins to formulate and grow and increase. And we become our happiest and our most joyful, like we were created to be. Worship team, you can come on up. In Matthew 25, Jesus told the parable of the talents. You might be familiar with that. The master giving out various amounts of talents and each one is sort of assigned to invest and put to good use. And this gift, this grace that's given to each of these when they come back, having used them for the master's glory, are met with well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over little, I will set you over much. And here's the key statement. Enter into the joy of your master. Okay, you know where this is all going. There it is. This is what God is up to. Getting you and I to a point where we can be before him. And we would hear those words. Enter into the joy of your master. Does that surprise you? Does it surprise you about who God is? Does that surprise you about that? That, that? Did you know that that's what God is doing? It's precisely what God is doing in a world filled with pain and suffering. We need to make sure we never forget about the joy of our master and that he has come and he's made a way for us to enter into it. And that's why that lame man was leaping and praising God so that we would too. Let's stand as we close together with a song.